You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello, this is Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager here at Asia House. And today we're very excited to bring you a new podcast in collaboration with the Baraka Trust and with the support of the Altair Trust and the Ahan Trust for Culture. And indeed, today we have here with us Ratish Nanda, who is the CEO of the Ahan Trust for Culture in India. And he's going to be talking to us about Humayun's tomb and his other projects in Delhi, as eventually we will discover how the Trust has used culture and heritage as a vehicle to empower local communities and bring about a higher standard of living by looking at social and economic issues. For this, we have here with us Saif Rashidi, director of the Baraka Trust. Welcome, and Ratish, welcome as well. It's a pleasure having you here. Well, thank you very much, Juan, and thank you, Ratish, for being with us on our podcast series. You're a very busy man, and it's a big honor to have you here. You're the CEO of Aga Khan Cultural Services India, and I wondered if you could tell us in a few words what the aim of your organization is and what you actually do. So, you know, the Aga Khan Trust for Culture is part of the larger Aga Khan Development Network. And the AKDN works across 30 countries, employs 85,000 people with the singular aim of improving the quality of life for communities worldwide, irrespective of religion or, or any of the other differences that mar today's world. We at the Aga Khan Trust for Culture do that through culture. We, in keeping with His Highness the Aga Khan's uh, philosophy expressed almost four decades ago or more, we leverage cultural assets for social economic gain, of, gain for resident communities, for wider communities within historic cities, and even international visitors who, who pre-COVID used to travel to see these incredible cities. And... You've done a lot of work around the Humayun's tomb in Delhi. I wondered if you could tell us just in a few words what the site is and in what ways it's a significant neighborhood of the city, assuming that many of us have never been there. (laughs) Uh, Well, then you should get there. But um, Humayun's tomb is one of the most remarkable buildings in India. It is built as a family mausoleum for the Mughals, but really for Emperor Humayun, who was the second of the Mughal emperors of India. So it was built in the 1560s. And when it was built, it was larger, bigger, grander and unique amongst uh, mausoleums anywhere in the Islamic world. So there was no building anywhere in the Islamic world that compares in terms of scale design of Humayun's tomb. Of course, about seven decades later, the design of Humayun's tomb was used to build the more famous Taj Mahal. Now, Humayun's tomb is a garden tomb, and it was recognized in 1993 as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And, you know, a garden tomb means it it sits in the middle of an enclosed walled garden. And in building it, there was quite a lot of Quranic paradise imagery used by the Mughal builders. Now, 1993 was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and one of the UNESCO conditions in doing so was that the garden should be restored. And the Archaeological Survey of India approached us at the Aga Khan Trust for Culture to undertake this garden restoration. And in 1997, His Highness, as a gift to India on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of India's independence, gifted the garden restoration. Now, this was the first ever privately undertaken 
conservation effort at any of India's national monuments. And it was also surprisingly the first garden restoration at Humayun's tomb. So we finished that. We, we completed the garden restoration in 2003. The flowers, fountains were uh, gurgling again and the, you know, the birds, the, the flowers and the fruit was again growing at Humayun's tomb after almost 400 years. And that was the end of our first initiative. But soon after, the government of India requested Zhanesti Aga Khan to do more work in the field of culture in India. And that led to several years of discussion on what to do and what not to do. Finally, in 2007, we signed a single piece of agreement with various government agencies to undertake a major urban conservation-led development effort around the Humayun's tomb. Now, this is quite critical because we are working in an area that is across 300 acres in the heart of the national capital of New Delhi. And over the last uh, 12 years, we have undertaken conservation of about uh, of Humayun's tomb itself with the support of the Tata Trust, but also uh, 60 other monuments, mostly dating from the 16th century or earlier in this complex. We've also created a new city park for Delhi, which uh, is called Sundar Nursery. And in 2018, Time magazine called it amongst the 100 greatest places in the world. But the final jigsaw in the puzzle is a major social economic development project for the 20,000 odd people who live in the adjoining Nizamuddin Basti. Now, this is a settlement that was first established in the early 14th century when uh, the Sufi saint Hazrat Nizamuddin Aulia came and settled here. He was later buried here and it's considered auspicious to be in India. It's considered auspicious to be buried near a saint's grave. So for five centuries following his burial, there has been a profusion of tomb building. So which is why this is one of the densest example of medieval Islamic monuments in, in the country. So we have made several uh, interventions in Nizamuddin, not only the conservation of some brilliant monuments, but also uh, improving health infrastructure, ed creating education infrastructure, urban improvements, street improvements, housing improvements, creating opportunities for vocational training, building toilets, because almost quarter of the population did not have in-home toilets, and you still get about... 4 million pilgrims to this place every year. So that's what we, that's what's kept us busy in Delhi over the last uh, 12, 13 years. Wow, that's an amazingly impressive project. I wanted to ask you, from your experience, what sort of difference has restoring the garden made to people? So, as I said, we, we started with the garden restoration. And what is critical about garden restoration is that you know, Humayun Garden itself has had several layers of intervention. Of course, it was built together with the tomb because the architect for Humayun's tomb came from a family of garden builders from the city of Herat in present-day Afghanistan. So the garden was laid out together with the tomb in the 1560s, so the mid-16th century. And then it was almost like a place of pilgrimage for the Mughals. But the Mughal Empire declined in the... 18th, 19th century, and thereafter the garden was really taken over uh, for farming and uh, and was in quite a sort of ruinous state when in the 1860s, the British converted it into a very English landscape, so did away with the Mughal elements and created 
circular flower beds and pathways and you name it. Now, Lord Curzon, who was the Viceroy of India, had a great interest in conservation and he oversaw the restoration of the garden in the early 20th century. And then through the 20th century, there were two attempts to restore flowing water, both of which failed miserably because they didn't understand the garden. And uh, finally, we were approached after the UNESCO designation to undertake this garden restoration. So the project really started in 2000, went on till 2003. And just the figures are incredible. We removed about 3000 lorry loads of earth on head load because we could not use equipment inside the garden to uh, you know, restore levels, the original levels, because over the years, a lot of earth had been brought in. We had to replace inappropriate tree species that had been planted here and go back through Mughal records to plant uh, trees favored by the Mughals, including you know, pomegranate, mango, neem, uh, chandni, harsingar, and hibiscus. But, you know, we had no idea about what plant species and what patterns they were originally planted in. So the landscape architect who oversaw this was Professor Muhammad Shahir, who was very familiar with Mughal gardens. And he designed a scheme that allowed the orchards to return, but also in a manner that visitor movement. So immediately on garden restoration, immediately on restoring the flowing water, we were able to increase visitor numbers by over a thousand percent, which is phenomenal because the money that we invested in the garden restoration was really recovered in excess ticket sales in under almost just a year. But 2,000 trees were planted, almost two kilometers of sandstone was hand chiseled. There was, of course, lots of lots of civil works, rebuilding the tanks, the water channels. Now, this was an experience that we then used to restore Bagh Babur in Kabul, Afghanistan. And then we returned in 2007 to India to do this large urban renewal project that includes the creation of Sundar Nursery. Now, Sundar Nursery was originally part of the symbol landscape of Humayun's tomb. It's a cultural landscape that stretches for 200-300 acres around the World Heritage Site. So the nursery also boasts of about 20 monuments standing within, within it. And again, Professor Muhammad Shahir, who unfortunately passed away about four years ago, created this design scheme that allowed us to build on the fact that Sundar Nursery had all these heritage components was a active plant nursery that the government of India still sells plants to. So there were three components in the Sundar nursery design that was critical. One was heritage, one was plant nursery, and then there was ecology. So the master plan for Sundar nursery really incorporated all these three elements into one great scheme. And much to our delight, it's been a roaring success. We now get about almost 30 to 40,000 people every every month during the winter season. And eventually, once COVID is all done and so on, the Sumayin's tomb and Sundar Nursery will become one large zone. This is almost like Central Park of New York. But it would be a refuge for both Delhiites, international visitors, and the school children of Delhi. And what does it mean to people from Delhi to have this beautiful garden well, you know, Seth, what happens is that unlike some of the other cities where AKTC has built these large gardens, Delhi is quite rich with open spaces. And that made us slightly unsure of how popular this will be. But what has been incredible is through active use of park for a variety of functions, such as we do an organic market, we have a 
few kiosks that serve you good coffee we we've got our own farm now with lost vegetables we've got a wilderness zone so we be getting we getting a cross section of people and we revived the tradition of picnics so we get people who take the bus and come and are of a certain economic strata we also get the posh cars the bmws and the mercedes coming so it's it's incredible to see how people of uh, different economic classes of uh, different faiths of different interests all sort of congregate at sundar nursery every day it sounds wonderful i know that apart from restoring the gardens you're also doing many projects to improve living conditions in the adjacent neighborhoods what is it that you actually do and how does it actually improve people's lives so you know when we finished the garden restoration we were offered about 50 sites from across india to to work at and being part of the aga khan historic cities program we had three conditions for selecting a site and one of them was the presence of a community that is associated with the site and who can benefit from the conservation effort that we undertake so for a lot of people a lot of people the impression is that we work at um, nizamuddin because we work at humayun's tomb but what i like to remind people is that if there was no nizamuddin basti we would probably not have worked at humayun's tomb we probably had chosen another site so for us improving demonstrating that conservation can lead to improved quality of life is absolutely critical and and towards that objective we started the project with a baseline survey we found some really shocking figures for the heart of delhi we for example realized that less than 1% of women had any economic opportunities we realized that less than 1% of people had been to a park in the last one year we realized malnutrition was over 80% in children we realized unemployment rates were extremely high and we realized that there was 25% of the community without in home toilets we began by addressing all of these needs and we of course did not start with the conservation effort because there was suspicion towards that but we did start with building an education infrastructure we built a community school for the municipal corporation which soon had about 600 students studying there we built a polyclinic which has had over 700000 patients over the last 10 years saving millions and millions and millions of dollars for the, not only the local community but people from afar in delhi we then engaged ourselves in improving uh, urban conditions improving streets you know uh, landscaping local parks that had been encroached or taken over for really misuse and finally we created a lot of uh, self help groups where women young youth we a career development center where uh, women and youth could learn skills that led to employment creation and then came covid covid's been a huge hit in the community so we are almost reskilling retraining looking at all of that we've been pushed back about 3 4 years in in that effort uh, but we've done a huge variety of work so women who were earlier doing nothing are now producing nizamuddin cuisine which has 700 years of cultural traditions we've reinvented the music traditions documented it uh, and for many years we've been doing a fair celebrating the rich cultural heritage of nizamuddin every year that sounds really interesting can you tell us more about the cuisine initiative that you're doing with women and also how you engage young people 
Well, you see, one of the things is that almost almost 50% of the project's effort have been towards social economic development. And we've got a very large team working with the community. Now, what has happened over the years is the team has mostly become from the community with local youth being trained to take over more responsibility. But essentially, you know, there is no shortcut to this. So hundreds and hundreds and thousands of street meetings have held. The youth started off by doing a heritage mapping and that led to a sense of pride and need for, you know, preservation. And with the with the community with the cooking it was quite interesting because the cuisine is famous you know it's really famous but uh, you wouldn't get it in any of the restaurants and these so we set up a kitchen with a small grant and at the onset it was done to address malnutrition in the community but uh, soon it be, became clearly as an economic opportunity so these women have you know who've never stepped out of the basti in all their lives have today run restaurants in five star hotels for a week on invitation so they've been flown down to hyderabad and bombay to you know really sell their wares and so they're quite in demand in delhi and uh, they set up their stall at sundar nursery every weekend it's it's a group one is quite proud of and these they have shown the initiative to continue to succeed beyond our existence and you also have a program to teach people to become guides for the heritage site isn't that correct yes so that was one of the first things we 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 taught local youth uh, we had intense training in english and history for local youth to really become tour guides for nizamuddin and over the years i think 40 50000 people have been walked through nizamuddin now this is very important is to see the space from the eyes of a local person and the way the program is it it really includes college students and school children and once they sort of find proper jobs they move on so it's it's been one of those programs that has had a quite a large turnover of youth and some of them continue to earn their livelihood from that and one of the things that's often a challenge with amazing projects like yours is what happens once the organization that sets them up moves on to other places and i wondered what you're doing to make it sustainable and long and give it longevity well you know any of the projects that are undertaken not only by the aga khan trust for culture but also by the aga khan development network worldwide start becoming concerned about what's going to happen after we leave from the onset so almost clause 1 of our mou with the government is that this is what we will do to make sure this survives now as i have described over the last few minutes the pro- program that asadaga khan trust for culture have undertaken here is very very diverse now one of the advantages we've had all this while is that we worked alongside government partners we worked uh, for example for the conservation we worked the archaeological survey of india is our partner and they do have the resources to continue to manage maintain monuments in a reasonable state with the creation of the sundar nursery that's a landscape it takes much more effort and especially in terms of managing the landscape in the manner in which it has been designed now for that we finally succeeded in creating a management trust and we continue as aktc continue to serve as managing trustees for 10 year period um, so so that's going on so we continue to manage sundar nursery for 10 years during this time sundar nursery should reach uh, financial self sustainability 
and as a result uh, we may continue or the government might require somebody else to to continue to manage on the nursery the real tricky bit is the effort with the community and again there are about 30 different programs that we are running here some of the programs will discontinue for example we have now taught 600 kids english through uh, various programs and uh, we have reached saturation in that sense we, we don't have any more kids in the basti of a certain age group to teach english to so that will discontinue and hopefully when there is a need one of these kids will show the initiative to start private tuitions and so on again the career development center with computers and so on again we are hoping it will be sustained through private initiative as part of sundar nursery management we might be able to continue maintenance management of the toilets but there are other means that that we are now over the next 2 years going to actively raise funds for creating a community based organization that will eventually take over from us 100% and be able to sustain many of the programs that are such as the community health program that are essential to good quality of life in the basti we actually started collecting waste house to house because it was all dumped being dumped in uh, open spaces that we have restored or landscaped for community use now over the years our subsidy for waste collection has gradually gone down and i think by the time we finish in july 22 we would have handed over the waste collection program to the community based organization and it will no longer require our subsidy so we are working tirelessly towards ensuring that these programs continue and in the meanwhile we know that over a million people have benefited from it even though the local population is only 20000 And I know that one of the things you're working on is a new museum that will tell the story of Humayun and his buildings and I mm-hmm. wonder why is it important why is it significant You see the museum is is the final hooray in that sense and you know ever since we when we started at this site there were about an average of 150 160000 visitors to Humayun's tomb Today there are about 2 million visitors to humayun's tomb and next year we expect about 500000 visitors to sundar nursery we also know that there are about 2 to 3 million pilgrims to nizamuddin so it it's a real hub for people a hub for visitors tourists pilgrims all of that also the place has incredible heritage both built heritage and intangible heritage very few people realize the diversity of architectural styles here of 500 years of continuous building but even fewer people realize that this is really the cradle of hindustani culture this is where some of our greatest poets such as the 14th century hazrat amir khusro or the 16th 17th century abdur rahim khan khanun or shah jahan's daughter jahanara or the much later mirza galib are all buried this is where many of them lived this is where they chose to be buried and 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 these are all iconic personalities similarly dara shikho who was shah jahan's chosen heir but was beheaded is also buried here and the museum aims to not only tell the story of delhi of river of how this place really grew in the confluence of the river yamuna but also the iconic personalities that lived and defined hindustani culture here over the last 700 years now what is clear is that the line between some of these iconic personalities darashikor rahim 
between Hinduism and Islam was very blurred. It was not as definitive divisions as we see today. So that is one of the things that people in the visitors to the museum will understand. Well, can you give us an example? of Humayun's tomb is a synthesis of Hinduism and Islam. So when, when Humayun's tomb was built, it was when the Mughals established themselves here. They did not see themselves as invaders who would come, loot and run away. This was going to be home. And Humayun's tomb is the first ever proclamation that this is home. This is a building built to such grand scale, built as a family tomb. It's known as the dormitory of the Mughals was Akbar's strong demonstration that this is going to be the Mughal homeland. Now, having said that, architecturally also Humayun's tomb picks up from a lot of Indian or pre-Islamic Hindu elements in its architectural style, the finial, the canopies on the roof, the six-sided star, the red and white contrast is all picked up uh, and built by Hindu craftsmen and, and is, is an incredible synthesis and which is why there is no other building anywhere in the Islamic world that's quite like it. And what about other cultural traditions like poetry and music? Yeah, so you know, the point is, this is a Sufi cultural landscape. This is where the whole Kavali tradition of music was born. And Kavali music is today heard all over the world and seems to be romantic, but it's really Amir Khusro singing in praise of his saint, whom he is a disciple. And and the music is about brotherhood. It's about and it's very and Sufism is very similar to the Hindu Bhakti movement and very similar inspirations, very similar music leading to almost Rahim, whose Dohas are still read in Hindi, Hindi school books. Uh, very unfortunately, very few people know that Rahim of Dohas is the same Rahim who's the commander in chief of the Mughal armies as in buried in Nizamuddin. So the museum tries to address all this ignorance. So what you're saying is that the Mughals synthesized aspects of Hindu culture into their own identity. I think the Mughals incorporated a lot of traditional elements, not only at Humayun's tomb, but across the country. I mean, from Gujarati architecture at Fatehpur Sikri and so on. They, they tried, at least during Akbar and Humayun's time, they tried to incorporate these elements and, and they surrounded themselves by, with local people as nobles and not only Persians or Uzbeks, but local, both Hindus and Muslims. And this is where it was all happening. This Humayun's tomb, Nizamuddin, Purana Kila, this is where it was all happening. This was the first sort of Mughal city uh, in India in the early 16th century. And at times when there's political tension between Hindus and Muslims in India, how do you think that the traditions of the Dargah of Nizamuddin, where you're working, are important? I think the tensions arise because the lessons of brotherhood, the lessons of pluralism, the learnings and teachings of Sufi saints has, has been forgotten about. And so through your work, you remind people more about this pluralism? In history? I, I mean, our work, we've not, as part of the project, done much work on Sufism, but it is it is something that through the work that we have done in Nizamuddin would definitely draw attention to what's happened, what, uh, what Nizamuddin stands for, which is the Hindustani culture. And one of the things that I often encounter is people thinking that heritage is a luxury. Can you share with us some personal anecdotes about the way in which people's lives have changed as a result of this project? 
So you see one of the things that, I mean, there are hundreds of those examples and it's sometimes funny, but sometimes sad. You know that I mentioned that when we first did our baseline surveys, we realized that less than 1% of the local people in Nizamuddin had been to a park in the last one year. And we realized that there were open spaces within Nizamuddin at the edge of the village settlement, but these had been taken over by rag pickers, drug dealers, rubbish, rubble, and so on. So we, we made a sustained campaign to clear these parks and redo the parks for community use, one of which was a women's park where uh, high walls prevented the direct male gaze from coming in and women could just be themselves. And at one point, this woman who must be in her late 70s, early 80s, much elder to me, I saw her and she, she, as a sign of reverence, almost touched my feet. It was a very embarrassing moment for me. But And she said, you know, which basically translates as like our lives were incomplete. And by making this park, you really completed our lives. And, you know, that's when I realized how important a simple green space could be in somebody's life. Now, mind you, Nizamuddin is one of the most densely populated areas in in Delhi, and that's saying something. So often when uh, women's relatives come home, they, they're not able to get them home. So now they, they do a lot of their social work, social activity in these parks. And there are lots of lots of those examples. We've, we've been able to save through the health program. We've been able to save lives, save families from going into ruin through bankruptcy. But I think I think the vision of the Aga Khan Trust for Culture in demonstrating that culture can really improve quality of life has we've, we've tried our best to demonstrate that here. And for you personally, what does it mean to be involved in a project like this? Well, personally, is irrelevant. I mean, in the end, we are uh, all working towards fulfilling the vision of the Aga Khan Trust for Culture of His Highness the Aga Khan. But I think what personally, as a professional, I wouldn't, as a conservation architect, I wouldn't ever get the opportunity to really fulfill my professional obligations towards society. And more importantly, for me, the real joy has been to work with a fantastic set of people over the years a real interdisciplinary team. We have at least 30 different disciplines on the team. And, and that cross-learning for me has been incredible. And you've mentioned COVID a couple of times and its impact. But I also know that you engage local communities to help you uh, do surveys and things like that. Can you tell us a bit about how people are getting involved in your initiative to deal with COVID? You know, uh, Seb, what happened was that there is the international headquarters of the Tablighi Jamaat here. Tablighi Jamaat is a Muslim group. And at some point, that would, their, their establishment turned out to be a super spreader event. And there was a lot of hue and cry across India, you know, uh, about it. We had really figured out that this was a threat uh, even before it broke out. And we've had a community health group. We were able to catalyze them into action and even before the lockdown, we were able to distribute something like 15,000 masks and spread awareness home to home about measures that need to be taken to prevent COVID. And then the outbreak happened. Once the outbreak happened and this place was sealed, uh, we assisted the Municipal Corporation of Delhi, who was one of our partners, to conducted a WHO mandated house to house survey. And because the community knew this area, we were able to go to about 1800 households in two days 
both to check for COVID, to spread awareness, to spread, to distribute essential COVID prevention commodities. And then we, we undertook a lot of measures, including everyday campaigns, including taking people for testing. That led us to being recognized by recently International Responsible Tourism Award. We, we were uh, highly commended for this COVID relief that we've done. And since the lockdown has ended, uh, not one COVID case came out in the Basti, and I must credit this group of women for that. But even since then, our uh, you know we've, we've had to distribute essential supplies to about 700 families who were really hard off. And we've raised money for retraining, for documenting uh, heritage and conservation and all of that during this time. So it's it's been the last six, seven months have been extremely more active than normal for a lot of members of the team. And I think it's also wonderful that community members got involved, enabling you to do surveys quickly and efficiently. I think these these were not really a community member. This was this was a community health group that we established about six seven years ago. So there are about fifty women who are part of that group. It's a it's a formal group, and they they have uh, they've got a lot of health related training over the last four or five years. So do you think that your work has strengthened the sense of community in Nizamuddin Basti? I think you know, contrary to what people feel, a lot of people feel Nizamuddin hundred percent Muslim and one community, one homogeneous community, it's not. It's really many, many different mohallas, communities, and you know, people from different sects, different times that they have moved in. About 400 families trace their descent from the saint and are cons- consider themselves to be the original inhabitants. There was a whole wave of people who moved here in the 1940s after partition and independence and another wave in the 1980s. And Nizamuddin stays the first port of immigration into Delhi for any Muslim from Eastern India. So the community is very heterogeneous. And uh, so our efforts towards getting all of these groups together is really going to culminate in forming a community-based organization. We work uh, individually with all the different communities and address their very different needs and are honored to do so. But I think the real test of creating Nizamuddin as a single community lies ahead. And do you think that the initiatives you do also help foster this sense of community and nationhood between Hindus and Muslims and others? Well, I think the shrine attracts more Hindus than Muslims. Uh, the Dargah of Hazrat Nizamuddin Aliya attracts more Hindus than Muslims. So that's something that's always been there. It's nothing that we can take credit for. But one of the things that I'm quite proud of, about four or five years ago, when we finished the restoration of Humayun's tomb, the community came to us with a request to conserve their mosque. So we are presently about to finish conservation on the major mosque, which is uh, dates from the early 14th century. And when a community hands over its principal place of worship, then you can sort of safely assume that they, you know, they trust you. How come, just as a last point, the Sufi shrine is more attractive to Hindus than to Muslims? Ah, Well, I think this is India. And a lot of, as I said, a lot of Sufism is really associated with the Bhakti movement. It's something Hindus can easily relate to. Orthodox Islam frowns upon Sufism. And as such, this is, is, I mean, the teachings of Hazrat Zamuddin Aliya, the belief in his 
ability to give boons even 700 years after his passing is something that hindus can easily relate to well thank you so much ratish it's been a really informative insight into the incredible work that you do also the cultural diversity of the, of your site in delhi and the fact that divisions between people are not as simplistic as outsiders would believe and and also of the potential to transform neighborhoods by involving communities and thinking hard about what it is they need thank you you were listening to the arts in isolation podcast brought to you by asia house for more information please visit our website asiahouseart.org